Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Takeout ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500 500. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We're at the Dubliner this morning. The date, March 29th. It's breakfast. You'll see that arrive in the not-too-distant future. Our guest, Dusty Johnson, Republican from South Dakota, member of lots of different caucuses in the House Republican majority, problem solvers, Main Street, partnership. Dusty, it's good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start with the debt ceiling. This week, the... We're not going to ease into anything no, a little no, easier? No, no, Just no, go no, right no. for the jugular. Well, we, we, good can Lord. Go, we, we, we can go to mass shootings if you want to do <laughs> well, that. For a, okay, terrible, so yeah. let, let's, let's, let's start with the debt ceiling. The Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, sent a letter to the President this week outlining five areas that he thought should be discussed is it your position, Dusty Johnson, that there must be negotiations and there cannot and will not be a clean debt ceiling increase? There absolutely need to be negotiations. And this is not a new, this is not a new approach. I mean, the reality is the last eight major uh, fiscal controls we've had in this country have come about because of negotiations and included the debt ceiling. And I know Joe Biden's just recently found religion on this clean debt ceiling approach, but the reality is he was the guy in 2011 who negotiated. Presidents prefer it that way. Prefer, presidents prefer that yes. way, including President Trump. It happened three mm-hmm. times with President Trump with no conditions, mm-hmm. no strings. And I do think you need to look at the political environment at the time, right? And the reality is that in 2011, clearly the political environment uh, with Vice President Joe Biden favored him cutting a deal as a part of the debt ceiling negotiation, which he did. He brokered that deal and he did, you know, he did an okay job of it. We're in, the, we're in a similar situation now. And the simple truth is the votes are not there to do it any other way. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and frankly, the, just from you a policy the perspective, why would we want a clean debt ceiling increase? We've got you, serious problems. And do you think the president has reached an understanding about that reality? That, well, he, that he can't get it and that he's going to have to come to the table one, at one point or another. He knows it. We're in a situation. Unfortunately, everybody in this town loves power negotiation, right? So you never want to be the first guy or gal to act like you want to cut a deal because that gives way leverage. People care about leverage way too much in this town. So we've kind of squandered two months while he continues with this uh, pretense that he's not going to negotiate. What's the timetable? When do you think things really need to start ratcheting up? A month ago. A month ago. We're, we're in a very bad spot as a country right now. The, the unwillingness 
for the president to even come to the table, I think, has cost us a lot of pretty important time. When we get back from recess, we hit the debt ceiling six weeks after that. Do you think concern about regional bank solvency adds to the pressure? It does. I'm and listen. Of course, I'm, I'm concerned about regional bank sovereignty. Uh, a rising interest rate environment clearly has created some additional stress on these banks. But we also shouldn't be making these long-term financial decisions on the basis of the news of the day or the news of the quarter. Um, you know, I don't want to exhaust uh, your folks uh, with too too much data, but the reality is in the last 10 years, we spent $3 trillion on interest payments on the debt. Now, we didn't get to get, no veteran got a new knee because mm-hmm. of that. No needy family got breakfast on their table. We just, that was money into the ether, $3 trillion. In the next 10 years, the CBO says that that number is going to be $10 trillion. And that's the generational problem. And bank solvency is an issue, but we should be making a 10-year or 20-year decision, not a quarter decision. So on the five priorities that the Speaker and your House Republican leader, he did not mention entitlement reform. I have been around Washington since 1990. I have covered these conflicts and negotiations before. I have been through countless reports on the necessity, most of them written by Republicans, to deal with entitlement reform, their absence now strikes me as interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's because... And unserious, if I can be candid. No, uh, no, I don't think it's unserious. I think it's an acknowledgement that issues ripen at different times. And right now, the issue is not ripe to have... Uh, Meaning there's no political support. Meaning that it's, uh, we will never get Joe Biden to agree to that as a part of debt ceiling negotiation. And, and I don't think any reasonable person would allege otherwise. We can't even get the guy to the table right now. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we would get him to the table, uh, you know, cut non-defense discretionary, and be able to do entitlement reform, listen, this is, that's, that's unrealistic. So why take the political heat for something that's got no chance of going anywhere? Well, it's not just about political heat. It's about being honest with the American people about what can we actually accomplish Mm -hmm. in this relatively narrow window. Now, let's be clear. Inaction long term on Medicare and Social Security is totally unacceptable, and it guarantees insolvency. One of those programs is insolvent in 2028, Mm -hmm. the other in 2032 or maybe 2033. Um, And so inaction is totally unacceptable. But we can't do all things in all in, times. In all times. Right? all right, so let me go down this list. Um, lower energy costs. That can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Some Democrats have said there's possible bipartisanship on a targeted permitting piece of legislation. Would that be enough? No, no. I mean, we got H.R. 1 that the House is going to pass out this week. Uh, the overwhelming majority of these provisions are something that should be able to gain bipartisan support. Uh, if we were in a, uh, if this was a functional town, Joe Biden would look at the House proposal HR one, which is a breathtaking suite of things that would deal with permitting and reform and energy projects, domestic energy, and he'd say, "Hey, I'll do two thirds of these." That would be a big win for the American people. Uh, COVID funding, unspent COVID funding. There seems to be a possibility of bipartisan agreement there. How much would be? needed to be clawed back? What would be a representative number that Republicans could rally around in the context of debt ceiling? I don't know why we wouldn't sweep it all back. I mean, if something's still... How much are we talking about? Well, $70 billion is a number that I think is pretty easily clawed back. $70 billion that is on the books but hasn't been spent. Right. And what would you do with that money? That would just go back into general revenue and pay down the debt Absolutely. or be debt service. Yeah, right. It would be less uh, so debt ha- that we would issue to so the Chinese anything, to buy. So what if the Democrats said, how about $30 billion? Well, $30 billion is not going to get us anywhere close to a deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to be talking about trillions. But, you know, listen, if that was if they wanted to walk back part of the $70 billion, clearly there'd be some give on some of these mm-hmm. issues. There's also border security to slow fentanyl. Mm-hmm. How do you measure that and how much money are we talking about? What we, kind of things would Republicans want and be willing to accept? We know what works at the border when Donald Trump put into place the Remain in Mexico policy. Uh, illegal border crossings fell by 85% in six weeks. 
It was almost like flipping a switch. Now, Joe Biden, admittedly, he hasn't been very public about this, but he's moved quite a little bit closer to the Trump policies in the last two months. Much closer. Much closer. Now, that is not, people don't understand that because the White House is kind of hiding that fact. It wouldn't play well with their base. But I think a presidential acknowledgement that the border has been a runaway so is crisis that, is that, would help. Is, is that, are the contours of a deal there money, personnel, technology? What is it? Because because there's a specific reference to fentanyl. Fentanyl is not people, but people do bring fentanyl in. How do you how do you address this? Well, and I think uh, some people would say, well, come on, Dusty. This fentanyl really comes in at the ports of crossing. Right. Port this of is entry. not the law. You know, the yeah. hundreds of miles of open desert. Yeah. That's true. But when you've got your border agents having to apprehend migrant families crossing outside of the ports then you have fewer people who are able to do drug interdiction work at the ports of entry. So it's all related. Got it. Non-defense discretionary spending. How much? How much Republicans need to see to begin to feel this is a serious negotiation? I mean, it feels like basic table stakes there should be the not very draconian idea that we could return to FY22. Non-defense fiscal year 2022. Yeah, which, again, I, I get in this town that would be described as extreme or terrible or draconian or destroy America or hurt America's poor. But listen, this is this is the budget we were dealing with just not all that long ago. And so return to FY22, and then we should have a situation in place where we cap the growth of non-defense discretionary by 1% a year. 1% a year. That's where Republicans would need to be for this to happen. Well, and that saves you in the 10-year window like 2 or $3 trillion. So we're working on the whole deal right here for breakfast at the Dubliner. I'm Major Garrett. Dusty Johnson is our <laughs> special guest. Back for segment two of The Takeout. And I'm going to dive into this omelet on camera in just a minute. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome back to Dubliner. Welcome back to Breakfast. Dusty Johnson is our guest. We worked through four of the five bullet points in Speaker Kevin McCarthy's letter this week to President Biden over the debt ceiling. The fifth one, work requirements for entitlements. Democrats tell many people who cover this issue on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis that is a complete non-starter. You know because you were in Congress at the time, 2018, even your side couldn't get, get together on food stamp tightening of requirements in 2018. Why would you expect Republicans to get together and Democrats to buy those now? Uh, Republicans were not really the problem last time. I mean, the problem is, and and listen, I support the filibuster, don't get me wrong, but you could have gotten the Republicans in the Senate to support work requirements. Mm -hmm. You just couldn't get 60 votes. Okay. Uh, How how do you define work requirements and why do they matter? Well, number one, they really work, and we can talk more about the data, but but number two, they're already in federal law. Mm Mm-hmm. There are some, they, right. they are in federal law. This was done with a strong bipartisan majority of Democrats and Republicans back in 1996. Bill Clinton was a champion for these ideas, and we know that they work. And, and so the idea that this is some sort of new, uh, ridiculous, extreme uh, attack on uh, the American working class is so entirely without merit. Mm-hmm. And as far as... Uh, what do they look like, right? What is the existing policy? The existing policy says that if you are an able-bodied young person, so a non-senior, without disabilities and without dependents at home, that you should, and if you're in an area that doesn't have high unemployment, that you should work, go to school, or be in a training program for 20 hours a week. We know that that works because there's simply no pathway out of poverty that doesn't include some mixture of work and education. 
of the five that are in Speaker McCarthy's letter, how many do you expect to be addressed at, realistically if there are negotiations? I mean, do you need all five? Do you think the House Republican majority needs all five or some combination? Well, what do you I, think the sweet spot on this is? I uh, admittedly don't understand why so many of these things are viewed as non-starters uh, by my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. And I guess maybe that's just a negotiating tactic. But I thought the response from the White House was remarkable. Kevin McCarthy lays out kind of an, the contours of what an initial plan might look like. The White House kind of rejects them out of hand and doesn't set a meeting time to talk about it. Okay, so one response from the White House, which you've heard before, and it's not an illegitimate response based on my experience. When you have a budget, we'll have a conversation. Why? Well, because it is a responsibility to pass a budget resolution. Yeah, well. And the question about a budget resolution is if you can pass it, you've proven that you can govern and you can hold your own majority together and you can produce a product that's specific, has numbers, has policy, and votes behind nobody it. Nobody really believes that. Okay, you no, don't believe no, that. No, nobody thinks that the, the, the budget that would pass out of the House with exclusively Republican votes mm-hmm. will look like the final bipartisan deal that nope. Joe Biden signs but off on. But it would on. look like your opening bid. So. Well, but Kevin McCarthy just provided an opening bid in, you know, on the four corners, on a paper, on a letter provided to the White House. Here's what we know about budgets. And by the way, Republicans should pass a budget and we will. Okay, you're right. That That's an obligation of governing. But why, we have a White House who's just refusing to play ball, even though we have a debt ceiling. Uh, I mean, Kevin McCarthy's willing to sit at the table. I think it's interesting the president refuses to sit at the table until Republicans pass a budget that admittedly everybody knows isn't going to look like the final deal. And, and I would just mention this. Joe Biden brought out his budget. It was a month late. But nobody alleges that the president's budget in any way helped this negotiation ripen. Mm. The Republicans okay. passing a budget isn't going to help this negotiation ripen. The only thing that will make this thing ripen is two, getting two guys together at a table. You mentioned... After the uh, recess the Congress will take for Passover and Easter, which is a two-week recess, there'll be about six weeks to go. Mm-hmm. My gut tells me if on that first week back there isn't a declaration that negotiations have begun, we are entering a crisis phase. Yes. Yes. I think we're very close to a crisis phase now, and I... I believe the White House is waiting. They're refusing to negotiate because they think that it provides them leverage. And I think that's irresponsible. And they think you'll blink. Yes. Patrick McHenry was on this program several weeks ago and said, this caucus, this conference will not blink. And the White House better understand that. He's not in favor, as you know, of linking these things. But he said, I'm not in favor, but I'm not the majority. And the majority of the Republican conference wants these things linked. And that's the political reality. Well, but Patrick isn't in favor of a clean debt ceiling increase. I mean, he knows that fiscal reforms have to be. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they, they, we, we have to. We have got to make progress on spending. Mm-hmm. We have to. Right. And so this is going to come to what? What's going to happen? Right now, we are entering. We're very close to a crisis phase. Be, I don't know how you can cut a deal when one of the parties refuses to negotiate. And, and right, I don't have the ability to force Joe Biden to come to the table. Let me change topics. As you know, Nashville became another city, terrorized, traumatized by a mass shooting, private Christian school, six victims. Is there anything that can be done legislatively about this that hasn't already been done? I don't know. I am uh, quite skeptical that the legislative solutions that people are talking about are really going to move the needle like we want them to. Listen, I'm a son of, uh, I'm a father of three sons who uh, get dropped off at school uh, every day or drive themselves to school. And obviously when you see this kind of carnage, this pure evil, uh, it sucks uh, it sucks everything you've got out of your soul. Uh, this is this type of evil shouldn't exist in the world. As far as exactly what can be done, I mean, last year when uh, folks largely on one side of the aisle passed uh, some uh, 
legislation mm-hmm. dealing with gun safety. You know, we were they, we were told that this was going to be a big advance and that this was, you know, anybody who wasn't for this was for continuing the carnage and this is how we stopped the carnage. Nobody really believes that that legislation has stopped these sort of acts of evil, mm-hmm. right? I think that's part of the problem with the legislative solutions that people throw around out there. We, we do <clears throat> them because we feel like we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the carnage is, unfortunately, a lot bigger than uh, what we saw in Nashville. The carnage is 100,000 people who die of drug overdose deaths every single year and 100,000 people who die from suicide every single year. We are not a healthy nation. We are under... Uh, what do you think that's about? I think a lot of the key institutions that used to, to, to bind us together and used to help us be resilient have weakened. And I'm not trying to criticize the way anybody lives their lives, but I do have to tell you, there, there are a lot of studies. In fact, The Economist just last week mm-hmm. talked about people who are a part of a faith community their mental health is substantially, significantly, materially stronger than those people who aren't. Now, the economist didn't say that's because Jesus is in their life, right? I mean, the economist did not talk about a spiritual. They talked about human capital. Mm-hmm. And I think the bonds that have kept us together and kept us healthy and had us uh, look after one another and, and be guardians of one another are at an absolute low watermark. I think our social capital is uh, falling off the cliff. And, and I think until we talk about... Why are 100,000 people killing themselves every year? We're going to continue to also talk about them killing others. This may bleed over into the next segment. If it does, that's perfectly fine. But there was a poll that came out in the Wall Street Journal this week. I wonder if it caught your attention. It certainly caught my attention. It looked at core American values and the level at which Americans identify them as very important in their lives. Patriotism in 1998 was 70% down to 38%. Religion, 62% in 1998, 39% currently. Um, Having children, 59% in 1998 as very important, 30% in 2023. Community involvement. Mm-hmm. Again, forty-seven to twenty-seven. I mean, again, these are the, the these are these are the bonds I'm talking about. So those that's the polling data, ladies and gentlemen. It came out this week. Dusty Johnson's our special guest. We're plowing through breakfast. It's March 29th. He'll give us his reaction to that polling data in segment three. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have, or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to The Takeout. Dubliner is our host restaurant. We are frequently here. We are always happy to have their hospitality and, in this case, breakfast. Dusty Johnson, I talked about the polling data. What's your takeaway? What is your informed political and personal perspective? I think the data is terrible. I think it's a siren call uh, to our country. I think it's a, a kind of a canary in a coal mine. And I, a lot of my personal friends whose uh, personal views are a lot more liberal than mine, uh, they would probably say, oh, that's fine, right? I mean, patriotism, how important is that, right? We shouldn't have a loyalty to a country. I mean, countries are corrupt. And, and think of all of the terrible acts that have happened in the world because of people's blind loyalty to their country. And I think that that kind of view is sort of ascendant in this country. Or, as many d- liberals have told me, I feel that patriotism has been bastardized by Trump and the flag and adherence to Trump, and that turns me off to the idea of patriotism. 
Yeah, I still love my country, but they have taken over. They've dominated. They've overmarketed this idea, and it's become fealty to Trump and not to the country. How terribly illogical. They're going to give Donald Trump that kind of power over how they view their nation? It's like if he's for patriotism, then I'm against it. Come on, grow up, everybody. I mean, I get it. He's a divisive figure. But at some point, we need to decide, are there key concepts in America that bind us together? We are going to, in a couple of years, celebrate our 250th birthday. Mm-hmm. Probably ought to do some thinking about what that means. Yeah, and I were... Uh, what the American experience is. And I get really frustrated with uh, my friends on the left who just sort of act like there can't be any of these common values. That any, everything everybody believes is fine. And whatever your situation you you. is and however you want to live your life. And so there's nothing that really binds us together. Uh that's balderdash. That's not how societies are organized. That's not how that's not how people are bonded together in a, in in civil society. There are quintessentially American values, and we should celebrate them. And in fact, we see that when those values fall by the wayside, society suffers. Mm-hmm. So I want to get back to mass shootings in the AR-15, because many people have talked about banning assault weapons. The president's in favor of banning assault weapons. Are you? I'm not in favor of banning assault weapons. Why? When you actually look at the data, and number again, I want to reiterate how absolutely evil these acts are. And uh, we, uh, I'm glad you're bringing it up because we need to have a serious conversation about what to do. I get frustrated when we will focus on uh, three tragic deaths there, 10 tragic deaths there, 20 tragic deaths there. And again, it is numbing and it is terrible. Why do we focus on those 12 or 15 deaths so much more than we do on the fact that in any given hour in this country, that's the kind of carnage that we that is being opposed, uh, imposed upon us by ourselves? And so we can, I mean, the reality is there are more people who are killed with knives every year than all rifles combined in this country. If, we re- if you really look at firearms deaths in this country, rifles are not the issue. 5%. Right. Handguns are 90 percent of handguns are 90 percent. However, and 10 but, of the 17 mass shootings in this country are implicated by AR-15s. So why? That's Las is, Vegas. Uh, that's Newtown. That's Pittsburgh. That's Sugarland Springs. That's Uvalde. That's Parkland. That's Aurora. That's Buffalo. So, and others. But life is sacred. So why? Why do we focus so much more on the evil that stole those lives mm-hmm. than the broader evil. I mean, it's, we spend more time talking about Uvalde, which is terrible. I mean, again, it was pure evil mm-hmm. than we do about 200,000 lost American lives. Why is that? And, and perhaps part of the reason that these uh, sick and demented evildoers use, the, uh, use the, these assault-style rifles is because it's provocative. Mm-hmm. Because they know that we will talk about it. Does any, any logical person would know that if that weapon was taken away from them, they would very easily be able to get uh, a you know, six-hour two, a thirty-two handgun, a couple of them, maybe four of them, maybe five of them, and be able to inflict the same kind of carnage. And is there a practical aspect to this as well? Because there are, by estimates that are credible, roughly 20 million AR-15-style rifles in this country. 16 million Americans own at least one. So if we were to, let's just say for the sake of argument, ban them mm-hmm. starting next year. Before that ban went into effect, probably another 2 million would be sold easily. Let's just say that as a point of conjecture. So that would be 22 million AR-15 style rifles in this country. There would be plenty of them around to do this damage. That that is a practical argument. And there's no confiscation method that this country would ever accept in that space. That's right. And keep in mind, people have differing opinions of what the Second Amendment means, but clearly uh, the Second Amendment throughout American history has meant that people have a right to small arms. They don't have a right to thermonuclear weapons, but they have a right to small arms. And people want to talk about semi-automatic rifles. You know what semi-automatic means? It just means that when you pull the trigger, one round expels. That 
a shotgun is semi-automatic. A handgun is semi-automatic. The idea that semi-automatic is some sort of some kind of a dangerous term. You look at the definitions of of what are these assault style rifles. It's sort of ridiculous. It's like what color is the stock? Mm-hmm. And and you talk about twenty million uh, uh, rifles. I think the number's bigger than that. That's maybe what people would call assault rifles. Twenty yeah, assault million assault rifles. Not, so not just rifles. Is it one percent that causes trouble? Two hundred thousand? Well, no. The number of the twenty million that are actually engaged in evil doing in a given year is thousands of a percent, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there are lots of very legitimate law-abiding American citizens that would ask, why are the rights of the ninety-nine point nine 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 eight seven five or whatever it is uh, dismantled? Because of uh, evildoers. As you probably know, uh, gun manufacturers did not lean into this particular manufacturer of weapons until after the assault weapon ban Mm -hmm. expired in 2004. It's a combination of things. The ban expired, and there was a post-9-11, some might say glorification, some might say just general interest in military-style weaponry. And they have been marketed aggressively, and they've now become a kind of political symbol. Mm Mm-hmm. There are members in your conference who wear pins of an AR-15. There's a member of your conference who wants a resolution calling the AR-15 America's national gun. What do you think that's about? What do you think about this identification and this cultural, political identification with an AR-15 is about? I think we've polarized everything in this country. And I think when, uh, in the same way that we talked about the left acting irrationally as a reaction to Trump, right? If he's for it, I'm against it. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of any logic uh, to the contrary be damned. I think when uh, when you have uh, people who think that they're, uh, legitimate constitutional rights are threatened, that there's going to be a reaction and that the reaction uh, may well be uh, more visible, uh, more public, uh, maybe more ostentatious. Uh, well, I suppose any reaction is reactionary. Do you know I, what I mean? Right. I mean, do... Um, Excessive, performative. I, I think the way that we should talk Shabby. about gun rights in this country needs to be far more thoughtful and, and reasonable than, frankly, most people on either side of the aisle are really willing to engage in. Any appetite in Congress to do anything this year after Nashville? I, I think most members of... Congress probably understand that the kind of legislative proposals they're being talked about are not actually going to have a substantial impact on saving the kind of American lives that we need to save. Mm-hmm. What would? A, a major and transformative investment in behavioral health. Mental and again, health. of course, I, I'm interested in saving the lives in Nashville. There's no question about that. But I don't, I, for the life of me, I don't understand why we seem to be so cavalier. I mean, we, we, we never focus this kind of attention and focus on suicide or drug overdose. Mm-hmm. We never or do. Or substance abuse, yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't understand why we are so numbed to the deaths of the 100,000 and the 100,000, and yet so drawn for perhaps only three or four days to, uh, to, the, to, to other acts of evil. And so I had a bill, it was bipartisan, Kim Schreier of Washington, we wanted to sweep up what was then a trillion dollars of unused COVID funds mm-hmm. and allow states to create perpetual trust funds to invest in behavioral health. So, I mean, a lot of Republicans go talk about behavioral health after violent acts, and you kind of wonder, well, but where, where's the rubber hit the road? I mean, I actually work with Dr. Schreier to put together an idea that would transform care in this country. I couldn't get Nancy Pelosi to put it on the floor. Now, I don't, and by the way, this was well after a year into COVID. Like, the real money that had to be spent had been spent. There was still a trillion dollars left unspent. I don't know what happened to that money in the last year, but it wasn't anywhere near as important as what we should have done, which was this behavioral health investment. That is the voice of Dusty Johnson. Segment for The Takeout coming your way in just one moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Takeout. Dubliner is our host restaurant. Breakfast, mighty tasty. Dusty Johnson, our guest. Uh, a moment ago, you described Donald Trump as a divisive figure. Should he be the Republican nominee in 2024? I'm certainly not a fan of a coronation. I mean, I know there are... Do you support him? Is, uh, oh, no. I mean, right now we're in a primary. I mean, mm-hmm. we got to let these things play out. I think primary should be about the future of the country. And I am going to look at every presidential candidate. I, I'm not, uh, I wouldn't provide any undue deference to Donald Trump. Uh, I want to hear what Tim Scott's got to say. I want to hear what Ron DeSantis is going to say. I want to hear what Nikki Haley's got to say. There are some in my party who want a coronation of the former president. I think that's a massive mistake. Did anything leading up to or on January 6, 2021, disqualify him, in your opinion, from being president again? Uh, he made mistakes that day. I grievous mistakes? That, uh, grievous mistakes. Uh, he could have done a lot more. Should have? Uh, he should have. Uh, he absolutely should have. I think there was, uh, there was a leadership opportunity there. He has a unique ability to talk to uh, the folks who were gathered. And again, let's, and I know folks know this, but the people who were gathered at his rally were overwhelmingly interested in peaceful protests. But we do not want to obscure the fact that there were people who went into the Capitol through acts of violence, hurt hundreds of police officers, and did serious damage, and were, some of them, attempting to subvert a constitutional obligation of Congress. Let's carry that forward. At his first official campaign rally in Waco, I'm sure you saw this, it began with a January 6th song and video tribute involving the former president. How comfortable or uncomfortable are you with that? I did not see it. I didn't see any of the Waco. It wasn't like I was boycotting it. I just have other things going on, right? Uh, You've read about it. You've heard about it. Uh, what you just described, that's the first time I've heard about any kind of a video montage. You know, I don't think January 6th is the kind of thing that anybody should celebrate. Mm -hmm. And what does it tell you about him and his orientation to this campaign that he wants to? Or believes that the people being held in pretrial detention for their serious offenses alleged are political prisoners? Uh, The reality is that uh, we don't have bail in the federal system. I kind of think we should. States do. Because there there's a lot of misinformation about these January 6th prisoners. The reality is that if you can't be released on a personal recognizant bond in the federal system, you sit until trial. Now, you do have a right to speedy trial. For people to be held this long, they and their attorneys have waived the right to a speedy trial, in part because the attorneys are gathering additional information so they can make a more robust defense of They're their, not political prisoners. They are not. Uh, that, that is, the reality is this is the federal system. And a higher percentage of other folks who've been arrested and, and charged in the federal system have been held, uh, not released on a PR bond, than, than the folks who were arrested as a part of January 6th. Finish this sentence for me, if you'd be so kind. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed because? Uh, bad decisions by managers uh, not properly matching uh, the time frame of liabilities and assets. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Yes. Uh, two exacerbating effects. Number one, uh, I think uh, bank supervisors uh, did not do enough to uh, identify uh, the stresses that were being caused by number two, another exacerbator, the fact that we, are, uh, we have had interest rates come up very, very quickly. And you, when you do that, you, uh, you put stress on the system. High interest rates, by the way, have uh, in no small part been caused by unnecessary uh, government spending. $10 trillion of monetary and fiscal policy was uh, absolutely unnecessary. You were not in Congress then, but I was covering at Congress and the administration at the time of the Great Recession. One of the uh, big bailouts at that time was for a bank called Washington Mutual. 
shorthanded WAMU. In that bank collapse, $8 billion in deposits were taken out of that bank in four days. In Silicon Valley Bank, $42 billion in deposits were taken out in four hours and 45 minutes. What does that tell you? About the, the, rapid, the, the, the rapid pace at which money can move, people can be motivated to make money decisions on their phone and then can enact those money decisions on their phone. Yeah, this is the first Twitter-caused run on the bank. And again, I'm not trying to blame Twitter, right? But we have uh, an almost instantaneous ability to share information, and that can, and then uh, depositors can almost instantaneously act on that by withdrawing their funds. We, I think, we have been somewhat slow to acknowledge. What does that mean for the bank deposit insurance formula? What does it mean for regulations? What does it mean for? like regional banks, which are now unduly and I think unnecessarily stressed by Silicon Valley Bank. And I'd like your perspective on this because quite obviously, as a representative from South Dakota, you give uh, more than a half a deal about the fate of regional banks. Absolutely. And, and by the way, this is a uniquely strong aspect of the American banking system. Most countries don't have these regional banks. Mm-hmm. Most countries have a few very large, concentrated. very dominant, very concentrated uh, set of financial institutions. We're remarkable. And by the way, I mean, th- that is a real strength of our system. Now, they have g- grown increasingly uh, interconnected. Mm-hmm. And so the ripple impacts, the potential contagion effects of bad decisions at one bank uh, can, can ripple. Um, what does it mean? I think it means that uh, we we can't forget about moral hazard. Uh, moral hazard means that when you make a bad decision, there needs to be punishment for it. And it's a really, or accountability, I shouldn't say punishment. It's a really important part of the capitalist system because we can't have people acting recklessly or cavalierly. There have to be negative repercussions for bad decisions. The good news is, I think by and large, moral hazard has been maintained. Listen, managers all lost their job and uh, the, the shareholders have all lost their equity. Right. They were not bailed out. They Only were depositors. not bailed out. Only depositors. That is... Sounds uh, like you're generally okay with the Biden administration actions to date. Well, I'll get to that. But for a little while, for probably the next few years, that is going to mean that bank managers will have learned the lessons that the Silicon Valley bank managers had to learn firsthand. And probably we, should have already known. We, should have should have already known, but we get human nature, right? I mean, we we are always amazed when we roll into a recession that Americans didn't do a better job saving for a rainy day. Then you go through a recession, people are like, oh my gosh, of course I need an emergency fund. And when we come out of that, we have uh, people's personal savings had a tendency to climb. Then we get a few years into the rearview mirror of difficult times, and now all of a sudden the, the new coat looks more interesting than saving for a rainy day. These lessons don't last forever, unfortunately, but I do think managers for the next uh, quite a number of years are going to be better at understanding interest rate stress. 45 seconds. Will Congress ban TikTok? I don't know. Should it? I don't know. Why? A lot of members seem solid on their opinion on that. I think it is an extraordinary step for a government to tell Americans they can't download an app on their own personal device. It is. I th- Legally tricky, tactically, practically tricky. Well, and in a country that values freedom, mm-hmm. and I mean, what is freedom? Freedom is not the right for you to do what I want you to do. Freedom is the, the right for you to do something I don't want you to do, and that I think is not in your best interest. Um, that being said, there's all the evidence in the world that TikTok is, a, is Chinese spyware, is Chinese malware, and it, it likely creates a national security threat. And that's why I introduced a bill last year to ban it from federal devices. A version of my bill was passed in mm-hmm. law last year, yep. and uh, that was a really good development. The voice of Dusty Johnson, our special guest. Stay tuned for your takeout outtake especial. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. 
on Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to your takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, the Dubliner, our host restaurant. Always happy to be here. Dusty Johnson, Republican South Dakota, is our guest. So there's this, I want to explain this to my audience, if you're so kind. This idea that um, the Republican conference in the House is made up of five families. You buy that? I do. Okay, what are the five families? Uh, moving from most conservative to most centrist, you have the Freedom Caucus. They're mm-hmm. the most notorious. They're actually the smallest of the five major caucuses. Five families. Five families, right. Uh, then you've got the Republican Study Group, which is the largest. It's so large that it doesn't necessarily always have a cohesive identity. Mm-hmm. It's an overwhelming majority of the Republican conference. Right. Uh, I'm a member of the Republican Study Committee. It uh, next would be the Republican Main Street Caucus. Mm-hmm. Those would be uh, Reagan uh, Republicans, people who are uh, quite conservative but also quite pragmatic about what is possible today. Right. I'm the chairman of that caucus. Mm-hmm. It's got between 70 and 75 members. Uh, then you've got the Republican governance group, sometimes called the Tuesday group. Mm-hmm. That would have uh, more frontliners, more members who would be more comfortable calling themselves moderates. Mm-hmm. And then you would have real the, swing, re- real swing district. Lots members. of lots of swing districts. And then uh, you would have the uh, problem solvers caucus, mm-hmm. which would be uh, the only bipartisan of the caucuses. Right. Would have twenty nine Democrats and twenty nine Republicans. It would try to find common ground. So five families sounds like a crime syndicate. It yes, and I know that's how many American people view Congress. But not nearly as efficient. No, well, uh, yeah, we uh, or ruthless. I, the reason I think this is the right way to view the House conference is that everybody gets a veto, and uh, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have the opportunity every single day to talk to all 222 members. He does have the opportunity every day to the extent that he, he wants to convene us, and he does regularly for us to talk to the five chairmen of those groups and get a sense of where is their membership. Right, Kevin McCarthy say- should get very. Very high marks for his ability to keep. When you say everyone has a veto, when the majority is as small as it is, you cannot have any real wanderers. Well, you get five, you get four, you're done, right? Yeah. Okay. So we have three questions we ask every guest at this show. Take them in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie. And if you're going to really enjoy some music. What artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Okay, working from the back uh, toward the front. The Beatles are magical. Of course, I would uh, prefer to choose an American band, mm-hmm. but there is nothing like the Beatles. Nobody even comes close. There have been a couple of like 30 or 40 day periods in my life when I have only listened to the Beatles, and I just never got sick of it. I just felt like there were layers upon layers. Not the best 40 songs, and not the worst 40 songs, because the worst 40 songs are truly garbage. But I, uh, that would give me 150 songs in the middle are incredible. Right. So early Beatles or later Beatles? Mid. Okay. Mid. Rubber Soul, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, not necessarily Let It Be, but not Here's the Beatles. Right, exactly. Got it. All right, book? Uh, no, we'll go oh, movie, movie first. Movie. Right. I, I, uh, the Princess Bride is magical. <laughs> Raising Arizona. <laughs> Uh, Knives Out. They're all really special pieces of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But if I had to pick one, Princess Bride. Princess Bride. Godfather's really good, too. Five families. Right? Yeah. yeah. But I think that's the first Princess Bride mention we've had on this program in it's seven years. It's so good. And it's a great, great, great movie. Uh, and book. I, I don't know. That's why I left it the last. I don't know. I, the book. A, bo- is- a book that would have that, that either in your young life or your adult life was uh, in the margins or maybe uh, more than marginally influential. I'll give you two answers. Uh, Freakonomics, mm-hmm. probably as much as anything, changed the way I viewed. One pop- of our earliest guests on this program, Stephen Day, J. Yeah. Dubner. Yeah. I, 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 to, for me, it was. Great book, great series of books, and a phenomenal podcast. For me, it changed the way that I, I viewed conventional wisdom. Conventional mm-hmm. wisdom is bullcrap. It's mm-hmm. amazing how, how often it's wrong. And for economics, Why I think... Why it's conventional. But yeah, right, exactly. And, and really, it's so often not supported by evidence. I would make a special note 
uh, for the Harry Potter series. I have read each of those books aloud to each of my three sons as they grew up. And that, and I we just finished the seventh book with my 11-year-old uh, just like three weeks ago. And it was sort of a remarkable, bittersweet moment. I have spent 10 years of my life, every night that I was home, reading one or sometimes two of those books. Because, you know, maybe one kid was on book one, another kid was on book five, right? Mm -hmm. It was a decade of my life and really an unbelievable way for me to bond with my kids. Uh, I'm a little sore of having that in the rearview mirror now. Understood. In tribute to Princess Bride, not inconceivable to have Dusty Johnson <laughs> at the table. And we'll see you next week. As you wish. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Diva Darce. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.